Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry. The world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, gang. My name is David Koechner. I'm Todd Packer from The Office. The Pac-Man. What's up, my nerds? Well, hello again, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Office Deep Dive. Buckle up. It's going to be a bumpy ride today. That's all I'll tell you. I am, as always, your host, Brian Baumgartner, and I've got some exciting news. As you know, I am soon going to be transitioning into my new podcast, Off the Beat, which is going to take what we do here at the Office Deep Dive and expand it to more of your favorite guests and shows. So we will still be talking to folks associated with the office, but so much more. And so today you're going to get a little sneak peek of what you can expect in off the beat as we bring in a very special guest, one of my good friends and one of the funniest guys that I know, David Keckner. Now, you may know him as Todd Packer from The Office, the Pac-Man himself, but today we're going to go deep. That's what she said. We're going to go into his full career, starting with his early days at Second City and Improv Olympic to SNL, where he got his start alongside Will Ferrell, his move out to LA, which led to his big break as Champ Kind on Anchorman, and, well, the long-standing friendship he's had with both Steve Carell and Nancy Walls Carell. 
which is how he landed his guest starring role on The Office as the man we all understandably love to hate. So let's dive in right now. The man who brought everyone in the world of The Office down is here today to lift us up. David Keckner, everybody. Bubble and squeak. I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning. Left over from the night before. What do I see but double B? He's looking at me. How are you, buddy? Always. I'm great. Always with the hat. I need I need yeah. lessons from you in hat wear. Well, you know what? It's just it's the sun for me. I'm fair. Yes. And so I, you I are. for me it's it's more like um it's not necessarily fashion, it's a necessity of like I gotta keep the sun off. No, I, but I do that, but I just wear baseball hats and I go into hat stores. To try to find something just a little bit more fashionable, I can't, I don't know. It's my head shape or something. See, I have a small head too, so. Um, <laughs> That's uh, what she I, said. It's, it, it's real, uh, Brian, I got to say, I've always thought this. It's all a decision about I can wear that. Really? I just need to yeah. have confidence? I, that's, mm. that's what I think. You just go, yep, right. I can wear that. And then you do, because it's, I can wear it's that. For, for us, it's the the... The, the larger forehead, the superior forehead that we have. Uh, but it's for me, it's the ears I got to watch out for, you know? Yeah. Because the, the ball cap doesn't do those. So maybe do you sunscreen? I do. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't religiously sunscreen. So I got to, that's my, this is the lazy sunscreen for me. <laughs> lazy sunscreen, but yeah. fashionable, way more fashionable as well. Well, thank you for saying so. And you're right. <laughs> yeah, I am right. I am right. Dave, you are one of the funniest people I've ever met. Um, well, that that almost goes without, let's just stop. Let's without just stop saying. There. Let's stop there. That was the episode, and I am now fully sated. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back with you because there's a lot about your life that I don't know. I know, obviously... Well, we'll talk about the Chiefs later on in Kansas City, nice. but you were born in Tipton, Missouri, and I assume your family was in in farming, right? Your dad manufactured chicken turkey coops? Turkey coops. I always start with saying he manufactured livestock trailers. So then people get okay. at least a vision of it's on a trailer. Then I add coops to it so they know it's on a trailer. Because every time I say it, people go, oh, for like something in your backyard? I'm like, well, um, that's condescending. And you're also <laughs> ignorant and not interested. Because it seems to me like when they go, oh, for your backyard? I've never seen a turkey coop in someone's backyard. I've seen chicken coops. But to me, like, oh, like your backyard? Like, oh, so you don't want to hear the rest of the story? That's what I take away from it. Um, so, no, they were they were 40-foot trailers and uh, large racks that are built for transferring turkeys from the farm to the processing plant. So from their home to uh, their death. Yes. Their final resting place. <laughs> to our mouths. Uh, to, uh, so we yes, weren't farmers. To... My dad was a manufacturer. He built a lot of different other farm implements like hay bale, uh, forks, 
uh, farrowing crates, which is another thing that's too long to get into, gas barrel stands, picnic table frames. But the, the biggest part of the business was turkey coops. And yeah, so uh, from Tipton, it's right dead center of Missouri. And from north, south, east, west, it's like right in the middle on Highway 50 between Jefferson City, the state capital, and Sedalia, which is where the Missouri State Fair was held every year. That is a very right. special place uh, in my heart. And so, yeah, that's where I grew up, town of 2,000 people. Wow. And yeah. now, when did you start thinking about being a performer? And I'm going to get, I'm going to use the word performer sure. generally now because I want to talk about right. that a, a little bit later about what you consider yourself. But when did you start thinking, oh, this may be something that I want to do? Well, uh, I've said this before. I'm one of six kids. And so when I was 10, I have a distinct memory of walking around the west side of my house by myself being very uh, contemplative and thinking, I got to get out of here. I have to, okay. I have to live in a city. I, I don't know where I'm going to go. I'm going to miss my family and friends, but I know I've got to go. And then when I was 13 was the first year for Saturday Night Live. And I knew my parents wouldn't let me watch it because they wouldn't let me watch like laugh in or a lot of shows, you know, like uh, room 222 or stuff like mm -hmm. that. It was too racy, uh, but they used to go out dancing every weekend. Uh, to the local farmers and sportsmen's club. And I had to babysit my three younger siblings and I knew they were going to be there. So I didn't say anything. I didn't ask permission because I knew they would have said no. So I didn't say anything. So I didn't have to lie. I just wouldn't right. mention it because I don't know if you remember <laughs> uh, you're a little bit younger than me, but they would do, they were doing some live commercials promoting Saturday Night Live. And I was like, this is brand new. This is a live show and it's comedy. It looks like something that I've never seen before. And so my parents were gone. And so SNL, let's see, it, it, it aired at 1030 in, in the Midwest. Right. And I remember watching it. And through that first year, I was like, I want to do that. I want to be on that show. Now, that was, that, you, don't, wow. yeah, you don't tell people because you're in a small town. Small, small towns don't really embrace dreams. <laughs> and again, this is before the internet. Dave so Kegner. I had no idea. That's the, that's the title of your new book. Right. Small towns don't Small embrace towns dreams. Small towns don't embrace dreams. Yeah. <laughs> I like you said new book as if I've written many. <laughs> um, but uh, so that was in my head. And yet I didn't tell people. I didn't tell anyone. And again, there's no performance opportunity or stage opportunity in Tipton. None. Except once a year, there was the high school play. And you couldn't do that until you were a junior. So there was no opportunity. This is pre-internet. There's not a ton of books. I'd never met an actor. I didn't know how it worked. So that's 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 what I knew, though. You just you watched SNL and you were like, I want to do that. That's yep. what I want to do. Yep. Wow. So what was your process then of of leaving Tipton? I, I know you went to Chicago. How did you decide that that was the place or go about getting there? Well, I went to college first and I was a political science major again. That's surprising to me. That's the most surprising thing you've said so far. Really? Oh, that's funny. No, I'm just uh, kidding. The thing, was, the thing is, uh, oh, because I'm very political. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, uh, I didn't even have a thought that I should be a theater major. That didn't come up. I thought you go to college for something that is dedicated to a pursuit, a career, a profession. So I thought, well, I'm going to be in politics. And I really, looking back on it, I think that was my desire to seek a stage. But I also had this altruistic streak where I thought a politician, their job was to help people. So I did that for three years. And then I started realizing like, this isn't, no one's talking about 
the you know how you use power or or the process or politics to really help people it was just about this machinations of things going on the third year was kind of getting to the more dry aspects of of politics and the you know administrative end of it and i remember thinking well shoot i've met so many bright people in this pursuit and i thought well the people in politics are either from a political family or they are um very wealthy or they're the smartest person in any room they walk into, and I was none of those things. So I just quit going to my classes because I remember thinking, I don't want to be a lawyer. I don't want to just work right. for a senator. And that doesn't seem like these people are really committed to just helping people. So I quit going to all my classes. So uh, as you know, if that happens, you're what they call academically ineligible, which is my <laughs> way of punting. It really was. And my dad said, well, Dave. I don't know what you want to do, but I don't think you want to go to school. And for me, that was a relief. I didn't, it, there was no punishment, but for him it was a relief. Cause it's like, okay, this kid's off my doll. I don't, so he <laughs> sold me the car I was driving. It was a, uh, God, what year was that thing? It was a 19, probably a 1977 Plymouth Grand Fury. Okay. Uh, he sold me that car for $400 and then I was there in Columbia, Missouri. I was working three different jobs just to make it, you know, paying for your rent and all that stuff. And then a buddy of mine and I, and by this point, Brian, I had read a bunch of books about Saturday Night Live. Like there's a smaller okay. book called Backstage at Saturday Night Live. Then I was starting to read books about Second City. And I'd read the book about John Belushi, Wired, and everything that kept coming up was like, oh, they're all from Second City. So a buddy of mine and I, we drove up to Chicago and... um we saw a show at Second City. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. You know, sitting there the whole time, I was like, God, this is what I want. This is what I want. And then on the way out, so actually on the second level there, the big big room at Second City, you go downstairs, and there's a big poster, and it was advertising classes. I was like, oh, my God. that's Oh, that's how. That's how they do it. And I had a matchbook and a golf pencil because back then you would fill out uh, a piece of paper for your mailing address. They wanted people's just like now they want your information. And so I surreptitiously wrote down the number for classes on that matchbook because I'm from Tipton. I, I expected someone to tap on my shoulder and say, what are you writing that down for? You can't do that. <laughs> That's the kind of narrative you come from a small town. Like, right. You don't, don't you have, you can't do that. And so then I went back to Columbia, Missouri and I called and I found out that they taught very different levels of classes. And then I saved my money. So that summer I came up and took a two week concentrated course for the, what was called players workshop. And then I went home and I'm like, that's it. I'm doing this. Went home. It took another year to save money and come back. And then I moved to Chicago when I was 24. Wow. Yeah. And, and did you, cause I know you worked at improv Olympic as well. Yeah. Were you doing both of those things simultaneously or well, once I got to town, I made the mistake of, thinking I had to be in restaurant management to uh, to afford living in Chicago, which I didn't realize I made less money there than I would have if I was waiting tables. It took six months there. So I just kept all these things that happened, happened for a reason. Like I didn't move to Chicago till I was 24 and I didn't start right away. And then when I was ready to start and I quit working as a restaurant manager, I got a, a job waiting tables and I opened up the Chicago Tribune and the Sunday section had an uh, article about Del Close and Sharna Halpin from the Improv Olympic and about what they were doing and they were going to have their own television show. And I like, this is the place to go. So I started first at the Improv Olympic, which was a blessing 
like all these things lined up and sent me to the right direction every time. And it was a delay in a sense, but it was the right time because at that point, all these other people were moving to town and starting classes. And they had all been fans of Saturday Night Live, the same relative age that I had been. And we all happened to be there, but everybody wanted to be good. It wasn't about being famous or successful. It's about you wanted to go there and do this thing and create that and find a way to do that magic you had been witnessing and be part of that type of thing. And it just so happened. So I started the Olympic first, and then I started taking classes at Second City simultaneously. So I was taking both classes. So about that time, I was probably doing at least four nights of classes a week. And then within a year, then I would be doing four nights of classes and or performance every week for my entire time in Chicago. And then years later, you read the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, and they talk about the 10,000 hours theory. And I look back like, oh, wow, I did it. I put that time in and that's the thing. Right. So that's how it, that's how it happened. And for people who don't know, Del Close, this is a legendary comedy teacher in Chicago. Who was there at the same time with you? Uh, Well, when I was there, Chris Farley and I started, actually Chris Farley started, I think six months later than me, but Chris Farley, Pat Finn, Pete Holney, Neil Flynn, Mike Coleman. Then, uh, so this is at Second City, then it's Dave Rosowski, Dave Pasquese, uh, a lot of these people are legends that you might not be household names, but trust me, these are legendary improv performers. Uh, Tim Meadows was there. Uh, Joel Murray was there. And then over the Second City side at the same time was Stephen Colbert, Steve Carell, uh, Richard Kind had just left town. But the okay. list of the people that I ended up working with in Chicago is a who's who of people who eventually became amazing. So then just behind me was Matt Besser Amy Poehler, Ian Roberts, Matt Walsh, Tina Fey, Rachel Dratch, Ratio Sands, Adam McKay, and other, other names. Now, these are writers. John Glazer, uh, Brian McCann, Brian Stack, Kevin Dorff. The list goes on and on. And Tommy Blocka, Andy Richter. It just goes on. And you realize that this was just happened to be an amazing time. And before I left town, I got Saturday Night Live after a couple of years, after many years working there, but um, I met with a guy named Bernie Solens, who's one of the persons that started Second City in 1958, and he and I had lunch, and he said he had never seen such a confluence of talent as had been there in this past 10 years. And I look at it now, and like that has never happened again. Like this group of people that all came through at this particular time in history, and all of them made a big impact in show business, or in media, I guess. Media. Well, you were there. I know Nancy Walls was also there. Yes, Nancy. Right? Sorry, I forgot to mention Nancy and I were on Saturday Night Live together. Nancy, and then Nancy she, Carell. She had been dating. Yes, yeah, she'd been dating Steve Carell. So Nancy and I actually were in the same company at Second City. And then we both got hired on Saturday Night Live at the same time. And then we both got let go from Saturday Night Live at the same time. <laughs> Nancy and Steve got married the summer she and I got hired. And uh, I was at their wedding and we were out there. You know, and Steve auditioned for SNL. I mean, that can be to be believed. Like they didn't recognize like Steve Carell's specialness. Um, I guess I have to say thank God because then I probably wouldn't have gotten hired. But so yeah, they got married right before we started doing SNL that first season, Nancy and I. And then I think Steve was doing a play. He'd been at Second City for a long time, and I was a huge fan of his back then. 
And he then went and did a play at the Goodman called uh, Picasso at the La Pena Gil, which was a yes. Steve Martin play. And then he ended yes. up, I think, doing it at a Broadway theater in, in New York. So they were there at the same time, too. Interesting. I didn't know. Did he play Einstein? I've never seen Do you remember? It. I don't oh, know. Never I never seen saw it. the play. Yeah. How arrogant is that? That I didn't think, oh, shit. You know, it's one of those things. I, back then, I probably would have said, done something stupid. Like, I'd like to see your play in such a way that meant, like, fuck you. You know what I mean? That I would have thought, oh, you want to come see my play? Oh, how good of you to come down to see my play. But, you know, you're busy uh, thinking about yourself right. and doing a million other things. But I never did get it. I didn't have a chance to see it in Chicago. And then in New York, I forget when the run was, but I didn't, I didn't get a chance to see it. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Were you still at Second City when you auditioned for SNL? Yeah, yeah. So that was why you left Second City? Yeah. That, I always thought to myself, I'm not going to go to New York or Los Angeles without a job. Like, I okay. I'd see people leave Chicago and go to L.A., but I always thought to myself, go when a job takes you there. Right. And I was fortunate enough that a job took me away. Yeah. Tell me about that audition experience. I've heard so many amazing stories. Yeah. Did you audition for Lauren? Yeah, I, I tell you, I had, um, it's weird and it, it sounds arrogant, but I knew I was going to get it because when I was 13, as I told you, I decided I'm going to be on that show. And it, right. it wasn't a feeling of uh, hubris or ego. It was just kind of this knowing, well, I'm going to be on that show. And so when I got asked to audition, I kind of heard other people had talked and some of the scouts had come through and I knew they really liked me. And I, I heard from other people that Lauren really thought highly of me. So this is before I went out to audition. So I really, I felt at ease. And so my first audition, you had to come in with a, uh, an original character. And then you had to do a political impression. And then you had to do a celebrity impression. So I did Pat Buchanan because he's got a, a grave, a gravelly voice like I do. Pat Buchanan was this right wing yeah. commentator on on back then it was CNN because there wasn't Fox News yet, but he was a right wing guy. He was one of the first guys talking about building a wall. And then I did Jack Lemon and Jim Carrey doing a buddy movie, and they were arguing about whose trailer was bigger. And Brian, <laughs> I improvised the entire thing. Did just off the top of your head? Yep. Well, I had some thoughts, you know how you think, because right. I was, I was uh, at the IO, there's such a purity to improvisation. Like you don't decide what you're doing ahead of time. Now that is a blessing and a curse. And you never repeat yourself at the IO. Like if you did the same character week after week, people are like, what, what are you doing? That's kind of like cheating. So after the first audition, which I just improvised, I wrote the second audition. The second audition, can't remember exactly. It may have been just go do your characters, or it may have been do the political impression and whatever characters you want to do. I remember I didn't have to do celebrities anymore. So I, I think I may have done Pat Buchanan again. And then I'd written this little piece, which is almost a one-man show of just characters, because I love to do characters back in Chicago too. And so I had all these little things I was going to do, and it's almost like they blended together. And at Studio 8H, there's no audience and no one's laughing and there's no warmth and it's a bit cold and there's cameras. Now I didn't know. And thankfully I didn't know the cameras are a live feed. There's people all over NBC. Oh, all over the building watching all over okay. the building and on the West coast. You don't know that you have a very large audience of people. 
you don't know that until later. And thankfully, you don't know because that would have probably been more anxiety inducing than anything else. But again, that doesn't exist unless you let it come into your head. And I had this sense of calm and peace that I knew I knew what I was doing. And I, in myself, I knew that what I was going to do was going to be satisfactory to me and that this is what I have. And there was no worry to it. And yeah. I did it and I felt very good about it. I don't remember if there was a laugh at all because no one gives it up. And then you wait another week or two and then you get called back again and you're getting called back and they don't tell you to prep or anything like that. You're just getting called back for a meeting and you don't know what it is. So you go to a meeting and it's Lauren Michaels is in there and Steve Higgins was the head writer. And then Lauren talks to you and it's really weird because he talks about this or that. He talks about baseball and I'm like, fuck, I don't know a thing about baseball. (laughs) And then in Chicago that summer, 500 people had died from the heat. And for whatever reason, that was on my mind because it's just been a headline that's talking about that. And I remember Lauren Lauren saying, we're done talking about that now to kind of prompt (laughs) me that, okay, either he doesn't want to hear about this story or whatever. (laughs) And so then it goes on, I don't know, five, 10 minutes. And then at some point, Steve leans over and goes, congratulations, you're hired. You're like, oh, okay. Because you're like, what's, it doesn't seem to be structured to this meeting. But I do, <laughs> I think the final meeting is just to check out if you're, if you've got a screw loose or you're a nut job or something, right. or you're just not ready. If you're too green or something, it would be pretty evident at that point. There was one guy and I don't know where he was from and I don't know what his name was, but I do know that in the previous two auditions, everyone thought he's British because all he did was speak in a British accent. And we're all from America. We don't know if it's a real one or not. It seemed fine. It did seem, I didn't get to know him. It seemed a bit presentational to me. But then uh, apparently at his meeting, it came out like, oh, I'm not really British. But he'd always been doing everything. It's it's like, (laughs) okay, fella, there seems to be a potential problem with you. And then he didn't make it. Everyone's like, probably that guy's going to make it. But he was gone. So I think that's what that final meeting is to find out, hey, what do we got here? Right. Now we're just one-on-one. There's no performance. Who are you? So yes, uh, Will Farrell and I were hired the same day. And then Will and I went to a um, baseball game that night and a limo pulls up and myself and Will and Steve Higgins sat in the fourth row behind home plate. They're Lauren's seats. Lauren didn't sit with us. He sat with Jim Signorelli, who did all the films, the short films, about 18 rows back. And we're like, so we're at a game with Lauren. This is how a game with Lauren works. <laughs> and before that, Lauren had mentioned to me... Um, uh, Dave, at the meeting, that's right. Dave, you know, this is your first time that people see you on television. So it's up to you. Do you want to have hair or not? And I was like, what? And he told me all the people that had wigs and all the people that had plugs. And I'm not going to tell you, but uh, it was a list of people. Like, you'd think you're like, oh, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. And I think to myself, like, is he telling me I have to get a toupee? Right. Is he telling me I have to get hair plugs? I was like, oh, fuck, because I was thinking, there's no way I could ever live it down with my buddies from Chicago if I show up on TV with hair. With hair. Because they'd be like, who the fuck are you? Or my family (laughs) would just probably go, oh, this is sad. And then I remember later, Lauren, you know, because I assume he could clearly see I was struggling with it. And I remember after the game, he said, Dave, about the hair, fuck it. Doesn't matter okay. to you. You be you. I'm like, oh, thank God. So that was that. I may have been like the first bald guy on the show. Maybe. Not that it matters. Right. 
That is so interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, that's how it happened. Yeah. And there's a bunch of new people with me. It's me and Will Farrell and Sherry O'Terry and Jim Brewer and Daryl uh, Hammond and Nancy Walls and Molly Shannon's second year, McDonald's third year, Spade's fifth year, uh, Tim Meadows' fifth year. Then Chris Catan came on halfway through the season. God, there were 13 of us. There's a whole picture over there. Oh, um, Mark McKinney's second year. I think that's all of us. Wow. That's amazing. I I love that. And I love that you, you know, sitting at home in Tipton Mm -hmm. said, that's what I'm going to do. And then you did. And then that brought you calm later on. Yeah. I I tell you, Brian, and when I got the show, I already decided in my mind, I'm not staying. You get a six-year contract. And I already decided I'm not staying six years because I always felt there's some people that stay too long here and I'm not going to be one of them. And I thought I'm going to be here three years. And whether you believe in manifesting things or not, after the first year, I wasn't invited back. And I was shocked because I had a great first year. But apparently, some people on the West Coast didn't dig what I was doing. And I like that. I'm Irish Catholic. And a a person from Second City, a teacher there, had once told me, because he was Irish too, he goes, you know, we Irish, we don't suffer fools gladly. And I certainly didn't. (laughs) And I had very strong opinions about what should and shouldn't be on the show. And I think I was pretty loud in my opinions and no one gave a fuck because, you know, you're you're not running the show, boy. You're on the show. (laughs) Do anything to get on the show. And it had been suggested to me that I do this one character as a talk show. And I thought that was the dumbest idea I ever heard. And I told them that. Then I realized after I wasn't asked back, they weren't asking me. (laughs) They were telling me, do this. But they were nice and go, how about this as a talk show? And I would say, that's what's wrong with this show. We have too many talk shows. We need more scenes. No one cares what you think. <laughs> but, you know, it was a blessing, I guess, because, I, you know, I moved out to L.A. and was very fortunate to start working right away. I had a development yeah. deal within three months that I moved out here. So I've been very fortunate. That's awesome. I want to mention really quickly, I know you did stuff with Conan O'Brien before you left New York, right? A little bit. Lauren, okay. L- Lauren felt bad. Lauren did not want to fire me. Lauren wanted to keep okay. me, but this, the year that I was on SNL is the first year that mad TV came on the air. And then Howard Stern had a late night show so that they had competition in that hour for the first time. And so West coast had a little bit more leverage on Lauren. Of course, there's a different politic that's going on there. And so right. they said, we want changes, but Lauren wanted to keep me. And in an effort to keep me, he said, maybe you can become a, a, a regular player on Conan's show, which they didn't have that position. So I remember going to someone's birthday party and uh, Conan was there. And I think Lauren had mentioned to Conan, you know, why don't you make Kettner a regular player on your show? And Conan was kind of like, he's like, I love you, but to be honest, that doesn't exist here and we don't have the money. (laughs) This is pretty early in their show. Like they didn't have a budget for, because every dollar is accounted for. So if if you had more money for talent, it would be, you'd get another writer. Right. And so they weren't hiring me as a writer. Uh, it would have been a great education for me to be a writer because I'm sure I would have had plenty of ideas. I sure I probably could have made it work. But the the idea of hiring an actor just to come on and be on the show, and he kind of let me down gently like that doesn't exist here. And I thought, and I didn't really want to do that either because I didn't want to stay in the same building. He's like, hey, uh, you're back in the minor leagues in the same building on the same station at the same time, <laughs> but not on the time you want to be there. Right. So it was like, yeah, I wasn't fighting for it. I was like, yeah. 
it, it hurt right. like hell, man. It hurt like hell. But yeah. yeah, I moved to LA. Then that next year, that September, when you know they're going back to work, I uh, packed up all my stuff in a U-Haul and drove out to LA. Yeah. You and know? when did you meet Gruber? Oh, Gruber, the first time I met him, he, he guest wrote on the show for two weeks in January of 96. And okay. I had put uh, Gerald, I got a sketch of Gerald Tibbins on the air. And he always liked that character. And Dave, Dave's from, uh, he had spent a lot of time in Iowa. So he's from the Midwest and so am I. Uh, Dave Gruber Allen is a legendary comedy figure. And he and I eventually did this show called The Naked Trucker and T-Bones. And so he and I both got cast in this movie called Dill Scallion, directed by Jordan Brady, who's now become a, a huge commercial director. And so I got cast in that, and Gruber's in the show too. And he was doing a late night show at Largo. The old Largo was a smaller club. Now it's this big theater in, in LA, or mid sized theater in LA, where they do a lot of comedy. And he said, Hey, I'm doing the show called The Naked Trucker Show. You should come by and do a guest spot as your T Bones character. So after we wrapped the film, I came by and I did, I think, 10 minutes of his show. And he did like 40 minutes. And then he invited me back the next week. And I think I did 15 minutes. And then the same thing the next week. And then I said, hey, why don't I just stay up for the whole show? Because it was working. And he and I were just improvising. This It was a really weird thing. So the naked truckers sing songs about being on the road. And they're just really absurd comedy songs. And he would tell stories. And then here I come with this character that's a a ne'er-do-well carny slash hobo who can quote Chaucer and Noam Chomsky. <laughs> so he's kind of like an intellectual carny. And so the chemistry was just perfect. And the partnership was just incredible. Yeah. And so he and I together was just magic. And we did that yeah. show for seven years in LA. And I, I'd say to this day, it's probably one of my, my fondest memories of performing ever. Because, man, it was just fantastic. And the greatest compliment I'd ever heard in doing that show is a live. Then we became a headliner there twice a month. But the greatest compliment I ever got was from some writers. Because a lot of Hollywood writers would come to the show. Like every Hollywood person came to the show. And some Hollywood writers had said, um, we come to the show for inspiration to realize that great comedy can still be done in this town. And I was like, oh. That's awesome. Wow. I didn't, you know, I've never been a guy that's big on um, seeking advantage or, or trying to not really understanding how to leverage what I have into something bigger. I just always assumed something bigger and the right thing is going to come along. It doesn't work that way. You've really got to be very specific and determined about exactly what you want to turn this thing into. And um, it turned into a very compromised show on, on Comedy Central in one season. And it's there, and I haven't looked at it in years. There's a lot of great stuff we had, but it was really confusing because the success Comedy Central had in comedy shows was Chappelle and Mencia, and that the format for that was the, the comic comes out and talks and then throws to a sketch. We weren't a sketch duo. Right. And so the format they forced us into was counterintuitive to what we should have been doing, but I didn't have the right people around me to be able to force Comedy Central's hand and say, no, no, we're going to do the show that we want to do. And so I just went along with it. And, it, you know, it was great. We had our own show. I've got to dig through all the tapes and start putting that stuff online and see what it was. Maybe it was one of those things, like probably a little bit ahead of its time. And I don't say that ego-wise. It was just kind of confusing for people. And um, they promoted it. I said, don't you ever promote this as blue-collar comedy because it's not. That's not the crowd for this. Right. I said, we're more of a daily show crowd. Um, 
And so they they came up and started calling it Roadhouse Comedy. Like, well, we didn't call it blue, blue collar comedy, but, you know, <laughs> like, what, what the fuck is Roadhouse Comedy? <laughs> like, it's, you know, they, they'd say, it's smart dumb. Like, don't it's fucking smart. ever say dumb when you're referring to my comedy, because it tells me that you don't get it at all. Anyway, is that network still on the air? And I mean that in all seriousness. Good God. Uh, I, I Whatever. Think, I think, that's shitty, because so. that's ego-based. But uh, they made a lot of mistakes, and I, my mistake was letting them do it. Right. What what would you consider yourself? Are you, and and I, I brought this up earlier. Yeah. Are you a stand up? Are you are you an improviser? Are you an actor? I know you're all you do all of those things. How do you view yourself? And it doesn't really matter. It's just curious. I know, but I, for between you and me, it's like we we do delineate between those types of things. But you said a performer, and I think that's probably the closest thing that's uh, a right. catch all for what I am. I love performing, whether it's with just two people or a thousand. Uh, so there's a performance. So I guess the other part would be I'm an entertainer. So I didn't do stand up until I had my fifth child, because okay. at that point I was like, I can never have a down month. Like I can't rely on anybody else to bring income. And if you're a stand up, you do have some independence. Like you can just go out and get it. That's the best right. part. And the other thing is that at this point in my career, I could start as a headliner which is a bit of a cheat because, you know, in the stand-up world, you, That's you right. pay your dues. But I had paid my dues on other stages, and I've never stopped performing live. So I've always performed live in Chicago, always performed in L.A. all the time. So I would do the Naked Trucker show, or else I would do sketch character pieces on stand-up shows because there was a variety of entertainment being done in all kinds of alternative rooms. So it was always a place to go perform live. So when I started doing stand-up, it was kind of like me doing a one-man show because I would do character pieces. In fact, right. my first hour, I had like – I had – Brian, I had changes on stage in comedy clubs. <laughs> and I think people were wondering like, what the fuck is going on here? Um, That's right. Because it's not, it's not the natural rhythm that they're used to, like ba-da-da-ba-da-da-ba-ba. And there's this guy with this attitude the entire show. By, you know, anyway, so that was very interesting. But at the same time – uh, to me, I'm like, I'm doing an hour of entertainment. You call it stand-up, call it whatever you want. The stand-up aspect is one person in front of a microphone standing up there. That's it. So you can't tell me, oh, I'm not doing it the way you do it. Like, I'm going to do it the way I do it, and I'm getting the same result. That audience full of people is laughing. So I think yeah. I think what you said, performer, is correct. Because there's yeah. performance when you're acting, and there's performance when you're doing stand-up or, or sketch or whatever. So, yeah. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. When did you meet Greg Daniels? I met Greg Daniels the first time when I was writing a pilot with a writer from King of the Hill. Okay. Uh, John Collier. Jesus Christ, Kickner. John Collier. John Collier. Amazing man. Amazing writer. So we wrote a, a pilot for the for the Gerald character. This was before The Naked Trucker. Okay. And it was really good, but they didn't understand it at all. They liked it, but it never went to pilot. So we wrote the script. And so Greg would come around then. See, I was a friend of Norm Hiscock from Saturday Night Live. He was a writer on Saturday Night Live, Canadian writer who's a head writer for Kids in the Hall. And so I wanted Norm to do it, but Norm was too busy because he was writing on King of the Hill and doing something else. So then John and I wrote the pilot, and he was, he was fantastic. But anyway, that's when I met Greg for the first time, and Norm and I were friends. And then Norm and I wrote a bunch of stuff together. We wrote several scripts for uh, two, two movie scripts for Gerald. They got close and then um, didn't get made. And then Norm was one of the head writers for the Naked Trucker and T-Bone show on Comedy Central. So, but that's how I met Greg. Yeah. Yeah. So the the story goes, you're shooting snakes on a plane. Mm -hmm. 
In Canada. In Canada. And you uh, you get a call about coming on and appearing on this television show, The Office. Now, I had, I had auditioned. You had auditioned. For Michael Scott. Okay. But I was a huge fan of The British Office. And as you remember, the pilot episode for The American Office borrowed heavily from the pilot episode of The British Office. And I couldn't get Ricky Gervais' rhythms out of my head. I couldn't audition. Because I was like, well, here's how he says it. How else would anyone say it? Because the way he does it's perfect. So I couldn't, I I auditioned, but it was neither here nor there because I didn't have a take other than what he did. That's so interesting because, you know, Steve didn't know Ricky Gervais' version of The Office. Right. So when he went in, he didn't have that reference. That's fascinating. So you had met Greg then auditioning for Michael, and then they called you about Packer. Is that what happened? Yes. As like you said, as the story goes, you'd had a wonderful actor who was quite capable, but I think he was struggling with it for whatever reason, and it just wasn't working. And I think they all agreed, like, oh, this doesn't, this isn't quite there. Right. So then you guys went on to shoot the next episode. I think it might have been episode four, and I think this was episode three when Packer comes. Yes. And so Steve, they were, I guess, still auditioning, and Steve apparently had said to Greg Daniels, how about Keckner for Packer? And I'm sure Greg was thinking, yeah, he's awful um, as a human being. Let's bring him in as Packer. But no, so with that, you know, I had had a pretty good career going. We'd already done Anchorman. So, you know, you've got the confidence and you know yourself. You know, Packer to me was like, oh, my Lord, you come in and say these awful things to people and get away with it. Fun. Plus, it's my buddy, Steve. All right. right. You know, there's no pressure, really. I'm just going to come in and do it. Okay. Now, had I had to audition for it, it would have been different because then you're trying rather than like, like I said before on SNL, I just went and did what I do and it worked and you get the job. You just go do what you do. When you audition for it, you're doing what in your, there's part of your mind that goes, I'm, I'm doing what I hope they want. Doesn't help. Do what you do. That is so smart. That is just so smart because you're right. Of course. No matter what you're auditioning for, and you know, what what do they tell you all the time, right? Make it your own, just do your version of it. But no, there's always still a place in the back of your mind that's going like, oh well, they must want this version of me or that or that. It's that is so freeing. That's so true. I've I never told this before, but I I borrowed from you and Robin Williams. Actually, the two of you who I started working with, I did a few projects with him right around the same time, maybe a little bit after. And I'll tell you, you, I mean, to say like Dave was Packer all the time on set, that's an inaccurate statement. But what I mean is, is that you were so free and fun and brought just an, an amazing energy to the set every single time you were there. And now whether it was because of your confidence or your relationship with Steve and you had known Greg and you were like, well, they're not going to fire me or whatever it was, <laughs> but you no. but I just mean, you just came in and it was immediately like, we're not doing brain surgery here, guys, right. we're making comedy television and let's make it fun and keep the atmosphere light. And I always respected you for that. And Robin was the same way on set, just like, we're not going to take this too seriously. And, um, 
uh, yeah, I just, I always, I always respected you for that and feel like I learned from you about oh, that. Cool. I've take, taken to other projects to be like, let's, let's keep this loose. Let's keep this light because ultimately that energy is just way more helpful <laughs> to creating comedy television, right? Yeah. There's a great improv teacher and he runs the Annoyance Theater in Chicago. And he's one of my peers in Chicago, a guy named Mick Napier. And he's legendary at this point now. But he had written a one-man show at the Annoyance for himself. And it was called Sex Boy because uh, Mick was going through his life and transition of whatever he felt his sexuality was. So that was part of it. He grew up in a small town in Indiana. And, you know, I think he may have been bi or whatever, but just figuring that whole thing out and putting it out on stage. But he had a preamble in his program. And he said, and I don't know if he borrowed it from somewhere else, but he said, it's called a play. It's not called a bore or a trial or a suffering. It's called a play. Right. So let us do that. And I always thought, yes, it's called a play. It's called a teleplay. It's called a screenplay. But the operative word is to play. And our right. job is to go out and play. And for me, if I'm the best day ever is when you've got a job in show business. So for me, I'm going to pay witness to that. Today, we get to do the thing we wanted to do when thousands and thousands and thousands of people who want to do what we get to do don't get to do it. So let's right. play and celebrate it. That's my attitude. Like, let's go have some fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Did you feel, because again, they said, come and do what you do, that you felt the freedom to just do what you do? Absolutely. There was no judgment. There was no restraint. Right. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't put any guardrails or parameters on what I was going to do. No. And you never did. Yes. And plus the other thing I knew, uh, the character was based on Finchie yes. from the original office and Finchie was fucking crazy and awful. <laughs> yes. He's not as bad as Finchie. Right. Who, remember Finchie takes one of the girls from the office and he has sex with her in the alleyway. And the look <laughs> on his face is just priceless. <laughs> Yeah, although you did, you know, poop in Michael's office and serve laced cupcakes, which right. actually, right. I thank you for that because that was one of my most favorite. I mean, people talk about the chili or the this or mm -hmm. the that, but one of my most favorite physical comedy scenes that I was able to do was like the flashback scene with Andy slash Ed Helms and I, after we got dosed up on your cupcakes, uh -huh. maybe may my favorite, but I feel like your role is a real manifestation of what ended up being a central part of the show, which was Michael's journey, right? Uh -huh. From, I mean, clearly a friend of yours from early on, or at least wanted to seem cool to be a friend of yours right. to ultimately sort of you know, shedding the shackles of yeah. you and being able to sort of evolve as a human being. Exactly. It's the representation of stunted adolescence, right? There are men that never grow. Right. And then, then they don't, when you don't care to grow, when you won't take a signal or there's no desire to be a better human, or if there's someone suggests it, you don't hear it. And in fact, you try to defeat it. You would challenge it. And, you know, it's just that absolute stubbornness that I'm fine, but it's also pain, right? I am resolute in my pain and I won't look at it. I will only drown it. I'll drown it with alcohol. I'll drown it with my noise. I'll drown it with my terrible behavior. 
And then you find out you're given license when you're that horrible. No one dares to challenge you because they don't want to be bear the brunt of whatever you're going to bring. They just like, this is a storm that's coming in because Packer's not there all the time. It's a storm. I'll weather the storm, batten down the hashes and wait for it to go away. <laughs> so that's what happens, right? And he's an emotional hand grenade and he's a terrible storm. I've never thought of that before, but that's exactly what happens. He's yeah. a storm coming through and I was like, just let it go. Let, let it go because he's got this ally in Michael until right. there are strong women that come into his life and say, no, no, that's not okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Now, have you ever run across anyone at this point, Brian, and you know this phenomenon as well as I do, and it's something I can't quite wrap my head around. The phenomenon that is the, the office is unlike any television show, I would say, in the history of television. It's beyond compare. I've never been part of something this incredible. I'm imagining the people from The Sopranos and Game of Thrones have the same thing. But the difference is because it's The Office and it's a comedy. And it brings something else to everybody's life. It's so important to people's lives yes. and their devotion to it, it. It changes people's lives. And it's, it's, it's a real deep part of their lives. And you've heard people say, it got me through cancer or it got me through this breakup or it yes. got us together. And it's unlike anything else. Have you ever heard anyone who has written a dissertation or their college thesis on The Office? Oh, yeah. Well, there's, there's oh, yeah. college classes now what? that are, yeah, are dedicated to the show. Well, I, th I think the thing that is, and you know, it's part of what I've been exploring over the last couple of years, which I think, as you say, it makes it wholly unique from e even the shows that you mentioned, which was that seven, eight years after we filmed anything, it was bigger than it was when we were on. Like it continues to expand and grow. Do you have an idea of why that is? Here's the way I look at it. And what I look at is why it appeals to a 12-year-old all the way to a 50-year-old and beyond. The way yes. I look at it is when they come to it at 12, they're exploring what they think is adult humor for the first time. And they get it and they understand it because it's so sharply written. Like, oh, jokes can be subtle and smart and big and broad and dumb at the same time. So they're starting to see the tapestry of, of humor. And then in high school, it, it's kind of like you get to that shared communion of, you get the joke the way I get the joke. Yes, it's a hip show. There's hip right. humor in it too. There's the obvious stuff, but then there's the subtle stuff. So that's another thing. Then in college, I believe, it, it, it gives you that, that security blanket of, well, I'm going to have to go out in the world and work. But it's not so scary because those buffoons on the office seem to make it work. <laughs> and so it can't be that scary a place. And then when you get into the workplace, you go, oh, that's right. Well, at least it's not. Our place is better than that place. But there are some people at the work at this place that are like that place. And as you go on, then you embrace like, we're the office. So right. that's why I think there's this thread that runs through all of those things. That's but very smart. The deep psychological impact. I, I haven't broken that down, but that's the only thread I feel like I kind of have a beat on why it's got that appeal from 12 to 90. Yeah. But the psychological, I, and the psychological thing, I probably breaks down to a bunch of different categories. And you know what Commedia dell'arte is. And for, yes. the, for your listeners, I don't know if you talked about it. Commedia dell'arte is, it's an Italian art form and they, they base their characters. They had uh, 11 archetypes based on uh, these representations of what humans were. 
from low yeah. class to high class, but all of them were lampooned. And so I know we don't have time to break it down, but if you look at The Office, they are all represented by one of the comedy archetypes from Commedia dell'arte as our exactly most right. sitcoms. And we're really just making fun of ourselves. And what we do is we see ourselves represented on the screen in those characters, and it gives us comfort and worth and the ability to go on because I belong. I'm part of something larger than me and I'm represented here and that's me and that person is someone else I love and you know enjoy or that person is a caution and everyone recognizes that that's the worst person we all agree on Packer's <laughs> terrible Packer's He's terrible. terrible yeah right no I think you're exactly right I I you know I mean people talk about you know My- Michael Scott the character of Michael Scott and he says inappropriate things and he says misguided things but I think that throughout the show, you really get to know these people and as mean as he is or misguided as he is at times, he has a tremendous amount of heart and all of the characters have a tremendous amount of heart, which I think brings comfort. I don't know, but that's no, what I it think, seems I to think me. you're absolutely right. Everybody, all the, the regular players on the show, you know, we identify with struggle. And so everyone's struggling, but they all succeed and they get through. And the best way to get through is to have heart and to identify with what kindness is and make the better choice. And it might take someone <laughs> several times to make the better choice, but you're rooting for them. Like, don't do that. Make right. the right choice, please, this time. But, you know, you have to not make that right choice a long time because it's comedy. Right. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. You were on SNL, we haven't even talked about, but obviously, you know, huge, classic, now all-time comedy movies, Anchorman, Champ Kind. What is the role now that you have done throughout your career that you would say that you are are most recognized for? Oh, well, it's Todd Becker, hands down. And then Champ Kind second. It was a puzzle to me, because after three years of being on just two episodes a season of the office. When you'd see your name in print, David Kecker from the office and anchorman, like, wait, no, it's anchorman. Then the office. I'm not, (laughs) I'm not on the office. I'm I'm barely on the office. But I think the thing about Packer is he was referenced a lot in the show, even when he's not there. Or I think people would feel there's like, Oh shit, something's going on. Things are bad. Is Packer coming? I think there's that, <laughs> that, that, that pervasive feeling like at any is a storm on its way. Can we avoid the storm? Or is, is this an episode <laughs> where Packer's going to show up? And it's almost this loathsome feeling like, oh, I don't want, I don't want the ghost, the horrible ghost, <laughs> to visit tonight. Uh, <laughs> yes. Well, if Packer's coming, there's no way to avoid him. Let's just right. be clear about that. There, you might batten down the hatches, but you can't you can't right. protect yourself. Yes, things are going to be overturned. I do want to mention, obviously, you are still incredibly busy and successful. And I know right now you're on tour. And by the way, I do have to say that. I do have to tell you this. People ask me now all the time. You know, I say, oh, I'm going to this college or oh, I'm going here or there. And they're like, oh, you know, stand up. And I, for me... You you mentioned sort of this before. I can't even call myself a stand-up because I, I feel like it's cheating because I right. didn't go through that before. Right. It's cheating now. Mm-hmm. But you're doing a live show, davidkechner.com. You can grab tickets there. You're going everywhere, right? All around the country? Yeah, this is the 
I'm doing more dates this year than I ever have before because I'm writing a new show and I will be doing a special before the end of the year. Nice. Yeah. And, you know, it takes a long time to become a stand up, they say. And I've been doing it long enough now that I feel like I can call myself one. Okay. But, you know, rather than trying to do what everybody else is doing, I finally like, no, no, David, you've got to embrace the thing that you do and do more of that. Because there's so many great stand ups that do so many different things well. Like that, do what you do well, Dave. Don't try to be a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Before, I think a lot of my show has been a little bit of this, a little bit of that, like compared to a lot of different influences that we've all had. But then at some point, you're like, well, what's your thing? Do your just of hour of just your thing the way you want to do it, and they'll come. Good for you. To see that. There are moments sometimes in shows, if I'm doing a character piece or someone who's used to the rhythm of a stand up going from, this joke to another. Now I'm in a character like what? And you know, the thing that I have and you have too, is like, you've got to say the stuff from the office and anchorman. Cause that's yeah. what got me here. So I do have to do that in my show. And I recognize that. So once that's done, like, okay, guys, we're done with that. Now comes my turn. <laughs> I, yeah. I struggle with whether to make them wait for it or just get it off, off the bat soon. I don't know. Brian, I'm the same way. I don't, there's not an answer. Okay. There's, Good. you know, it's up to you. I think what I've done, I've done both. I've done where I do it right away. And I've done where I do it halfway through. And right. I sometimes will do it when they yell. Right. You know, after 15 minutes, someone will yell whammy. And I know they can't even pay attention to my show until they hear <laughs> whammy. It's almost like, okay, I'll give you a whammy. It's almost like a kid. All right, you're going to get one cookie, and then we're going to, you know, then we're going home or whatever. We're, then we're going to settle in and watch the movie. Yes, you get popcorn and, and soda pop, then you got to be quiet for the whole movie. Uh, but there is that because there's people who just can't stand it. Yeah, When's he going to say know. whammy? I know. When's, When's he going to say, say what's up, my nerds? I came to hear you say what's up, my nerds. That's so right. So I, I, I get it. You and I can't run from this. It's it's no. what got them in the seats in the first place. That's right. That is true. Can't leave you without talking about the Kansas City Chiefs. Nice. Maybe the greatest game yeah. in the history of the NFL. The Buffalo Bills losing somehow with 13 seconds left on the clock and Kansas City coming through. What uh, your experience watching the last 13 plus seconds of that game. Well, I'd be a liar if I didn't say I had availed myself to the idea that it's okay. Okay. It's okay. I knew we we're playing the best other team in my estimation in the game this year. I knew that the Buffalo bills would be our toughest opponent of the year. We've got so many weapons. You've got so much hope and we've got Mahomes. And all of them. You don't just say we've got Mahomes. We've got Mahomes and Kelsey and Hill and Pringle and everybody, you know, and Williams and Edwards Alaire uh, and that front line. We've got everything. But there is something about the magic of these two quarterbacks, uh, Allen and Mahomes, and they both kept doing it. And it's, you know, it's only about the time because they would have come back and scored. Yeah. Yeah. This could oh, have yeah. gone back and forth all night. Yeah. We just happen to have the ball I mean, at the time. Allen played an absolutely perfect game and mm -hmm. lost. And lost. Yeah. Um, so I was willing I was willing to accept defeat. I wasn't defeated. I was willing to go, okay, well, we put it all out there too. 
And I can't yeah. believe they came back after what we just did. And there, there's never, because you, there's always talking about time management in football. You left him too much time. You're like, you're like what do you mean you left him too much time? There's 13 seconds. Yeah. Then, you know, you can't second guess their coach, right? Let's put them yeah. deep on the 25. Everyone could say, you should have squibbed it. You should have kicked an onside kick. You should have, well, should have, should have, should have. And then how are you going to go, you know, 75 yards? That's not going to happen. Well, yeah. with a special team, it does, and it's okay. And you've got to be part of a special game. And I felt, too, it was like, God, do we start saying this is the greatest game? I was at the Coliseum when the, the Chiefs and the Rams scored 109 points and kept going back and forth. That was an amazing game. We lost that one. But the lesson was we were right there. We could do it. We scored 40-some or 50 points, right? Yeah. And like, we can do it. So, yeah, it, to be part of a great game is something else. Yeah, it was amazing. If you are playing in the Super Bowl, good luck. Mm -hmm. And if you're not, well, you won, I think, the greatest game in yeah. NFL history. The, the best game I've ever seen. Yeah. I don't see how we're not there. I'm pretty confident, but you know, one game well, at a time, one day at a time. Yeah. One day at a time. And I know you and Aaron are close and, uh, that's tough. Yeah. That was not, He's incredible. that was not as fun. I'll be honest. No. I was hoping, I was hoping it was going to be, uh, the chiefs and the Packers. But, I thought uh, it was going to be. I did too. I thought I was pretty sure that's, that's, and I thought that's going to be an incredible game Yeah, because we didn't play the Packers. We played the Packers without Aaron Rodgers earlier in the season. That's right. We didn't beat the Packers. We beat the Packers without Aaron Rodgers. That's not the Packers. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, good luck. Enjoy. Enjoy it. And Dave, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, A pleasure. I appreciate you so much and uh, sharing, well, your insight about the office, but also I think some amazing words for, for anyone who not only has a dream of being an entertainer or in this business, but, but really any business. So thank you, my friend. I appreciate you as well. Double B great to spend time with you. Uh, thank God for technology so we can hang out. And that was, I know, exactly. that was wonderful. Thank exactly. you. Right on. <laughs> All right, brother, best of your family. Have a great day. That was amazing. David, thank you so much for stopping by. Funny, I expected. Deep? I did not. But, hey, I loved it. All of you out there listening, that was great, right? I hope you enjoyed it. Off the Beat is going to be freaking awesome. I'm so excited. I'm going to be back next week here with the man who brought the office to the States. Once again, Ben Silverman. It's going to be a bittersweet episode, but I cannot wait to go off the beat with all of you. I'll see you then. The Office Deep Dive is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Lang Lee. Our producers are Liz Hayes and Diego Tapia. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by my great friend Creed Bratton. And the episode was mixed by Seth Olansky.
Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.